Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. Today is the 26th of June 2017. In this week's episode, we examine the role of animals in the Great War. Lucinda Moore has written a new book on the subject based on rare photographs from the Mary Evans Picture Library, where she is a picture researcher. Her book has been published by Pen and Sword, and I spoke to Lucinda about it. I started our conversation by asking her, what role did animals play in the war? Well, um, animals were absolutely crucial in the Great War. They had um, a a wide range of roles that um, were, well, essential, really, fundamentally in terms of um, transportation. So, for example, the role of the, the war horses is quite well known thanks to uh, to uh, Michael Morpogo's book and the following screenplay as well, of course. But um, also um, mules um, and even dogs were, were used in terms of transporting um, munitions to the front line. So there were dogs pulling machine gun carriers and that kind of thing. Um, communications animals were used as carrier pigeons and even messenger dogs um, and even on sort of very basic level roles such as um, pest control so animals being used as um, for ratting so ferrets and dogs and um, food as well is, is quite quite a big one and um, bully beef and eggs in the trenches you know uh, soldiers having um small chicken runs and that kind of thing so even though perhaps you think of animals as being a source of um you know um companionship as well and having psychological benefits like that really at the at the base of it things like um food transport communication were um were were absolutely essential so, Lucinda, why did you come to write a book on animals in the Great War? The inspiration behind the book was the um, the Mary Evans blog picturing the Great War, um, which we started to tie in with the the centenary. Um, the the idea behind the blog was to have a focal point for some of the amazing stories that we were coming across quite frequently in the archive relating to the Great War. Um, as a contributor to that blog, um, the, the animal stories really started catching my eye. And my, my colleague, Lucy Gosling, who's um, a very prolific author and has um, written herself a lot for um, magazines as well as her own books, um, suggested that I might like to start collating material using the blog, the blog as a springboard um, looking at our, our animal and other creature-related pictures from, from that era. So wh- where were these stories actually um, presented? Were they in magazines like the London Illustrated News and the Daily Graphic? That, those, those sort of publications, that's right. So we're, we're very lucky here at Mary Evans Pitch and Ivory in that we, we represent the, um, the Illustrated London News Group's collection of illustrated papers, which includes the Illustrated London News, um, the Graphic, but also um, other publications that were around at the time, like the which had a more of a society look at the war, but also animals featured quite prominently as part of that. We've also got material from the Lifetimes collection of Mary Evans herself, which involves um, lots of other um, books that aren't necessarily the, the weekly published periodicals, as well as things like um, postcards and other ephemera, which with Mary Evans being very interested in animal rights and a very a very big, um, big fan of dogs in particular, um, we have quite a strong collection here partly as a result of her own interest in this area. 
So what sort of stories emerged from these um, publications during the Great War? How are, how are animals portrayed? Um, generally in, in, in very positive terms. So uh, one thing that I found quite surprising is, you know, there's a, there's a global conflict taking place. You'd think animal interest stories would be, um, you know, perhaps disregarded by the press, but actually they, they cropped up quite a lot um, in terms of uh, boosting morale and just having a perhaps a different perspective that, um, for us in the, the 21st century, um, looking back at the war, um, even things like, um, sorry, this, this, is, this is a slightly off-the-wall example, but the Illustrated London News um, ran a feature about how um, whales were affected by the war, um, as in the, the, the sea creatures. They were, um, they were the unwitting um, targets of bombs because from the air, um, a a whale looks very much like um, a U-boat, and there were incidences of um, whales being um, washed up on on our shores with these sort of mine or um, aerial bomb-related wounds. And so that's an example of how um, a publication like the Illustrated London News would have taken a, a story relating to a creature, um, and it was featured in their publication. But if you think of the First World War, you don't necessarily think it's going to affect sea creatures or um no it's, it's really interesting and obviously they probably featured a lot of stories from the trenches what sort of what sort of themes did these ones uh, discuss there's um a an interesting um magazine um, book rather that um, i discovered in the archive called animal war heroes which um focused more on sort of life in the trenches and and it was you know, quite gripping stuff really about how um say individual soldiers um related to um animals that they perhaps adopted or became regimental mascots and um, in some cases and um, even even going to save the lives of the soldiers through through their actions so for example um geese um were adopted rather surprisingly and um, as as mascot they could also act as a sort of one not not early warning system but almost as um they they would make a frightful noise if say um unknown people were approaching the the area that they were in so how did animals actually help soldiers cope with the stress and trauma of the the trenches well today i think we're all quite familiar with the idea of pets as therapy and often um hospitals today you you might see someone walking around with with a dog and you know with their little um sort of bandanas on with with that message on as an idea to to help people who are convalescing or recovering but um certainly in the images that i've seen from the archive and in, in the publications we house here at the library animals do seem to be a very um a powerful source of um of comfort and companionship there's a there's a beautiful picture of the, the features in the book of a of a soldier sort of caressing the head of a dog in a really dismal looking trench and just the contrast of that of that companionship and relationship to the the very dire settings that um, man and, and dog found themselves in yeah i mean one of the one of the themes that emerges from a lot of um memoirs is the distress that um, the sight of dead animals causes soldiers as opposed to the the sights of death and, and maim, maiming of, of human beings is that at all is that theme at all picked up in in your research and there's certainly um, a marked contrast between the, the the carnage and and chaos of 
the front lines and the lengths that, say, soldiers would go to to um, protect and care for um, animals that came uh, under their care. So, for example, there was a report of um, a, a, a lieutenant who found a, a family of kittens whose mother had been killed during, I think there was a bombardment and the mother was dead and there were some very, very young kittens um, that were left completely abandoned and he fed them individually through a straw using, I think, um, I think it was condensed milk to try and bring these kittens to um, you know, stop them from starving to death. And all, all bar one of them died in the end. But the, the cat that lived, Patchouli was its name, and became a, a stalwart companion. But you, you'd think, you know, you're, you're in the midst of a conflict. You know, who cares if a bunch of kittens, you know, die without any food? But strangely, men and were giving time and resources to caring for these creatures that, you know, in one sense, didn't really matter at all in the midst of all the, all the, all the violence of war. Because I think one, one of the themes I'm, I've often picked up about, certainly in, in 1914 and early 1915, is when soldiers are sent out to establish trench lines in front of the Germans and farm animals that, of the local farm um, farmers have been actually are still wandering around and are still di- displaced. And how people, you know, soldiers become distressed that they see these animals wandering around and they eventually get shot. It's not, um, it's not something that I've come across um, directly in terms of the um, the images that um, I've uncovered in the archive. But certainly I, I did come across the idea of horse eco- economizer units, which was a way of disposing of the um, well vast quantities of dead horses that died as a result of the war. And I think probably the see, seeing the the dead animals probably was a, like an additional source of trauma for for the soldiers. But the the way in which I mean, if, if you think about the size of a horse um, and disposing of that court it, it's, it's quite a big job and so these these units were set up to maximize them as a resource really in terms of um, bones and flesh and um, utilizing that and disposing of the bodies which was a slightly sort of a well an unexpected aspect to the research but then when you when you do stop and think about it a death toll on this scale what does happen to all those all those bodies and how how are they used from then on yes i mean i know certainly i have an account of a transport section and um, in, the, in the london rifle brigade and every time a horse died they, they knew they were going to get um, fresh meat you know as opposed to bully beef which was, was was not at all liked by soldiers and this was you know an unfortunate upside of, of working with animals especially in this sort of very very tough and trying environment where the food was often very very dull i don't know whether you found that at all, um, whether, whether people had a slightly contradictory relationship with animals, um, one minute seeing them as you know companions and the next seeing them as a source of food. I mean, I think I, I think certainly um, there was a quite a pragmatic approach um, on the on the front lines with with animals in that respect. Um, I did read one um, account of two geese that were um, obtained, and with the attention of um, them being fattened up as the uh, the Christmas dinner for the officers' mess. But the um, the men took such a fancy to them that a a mock trial was held of the geese, and they decided to adopt them as mascots instead. So they were they they were spared the the Christmas roast. But I've, I've certainly come across other accounts of soldiers who were perhaps farmhands or experienced in agriculture before they signed up, seeing things like um, dairy cows wandering free as, as the front lines encroached and taking the opportunity to you know, stop and give them a bit of a milk and enjoy that as a supplement to the rations. I, there was one account I read which was, which, um, in which a, an officer had adopted a small dog and the officer complained that it was a Dachshund, but it wasn't the Dachshund's fault. Um, obviously, because, <laughs> because Dachshunds are, are a German breed, and I wonder whether there's any sort of you know informal discrimination against certain animals because they represented or or had origins for, from for being German or or um, 
or Austrian in any way. I don't know whether that, that those sort of themes emerge. I mean, uh, certainly people chose to sort of express their their patriotic allegiances through their choice of dog, and um, and it was it was a bit of an issue for for Jacksons. And you can you can see how um, sort of through slight rebranding, um, perhaps they tried to combat that. So. Things like um, the Jackson was, for some, re- renamed the, the Badger Dog, which is more of a literal, li- literal translation. And also, um, the, the, what we would know as a German set Shepherd became known as Alsatians because it sort of was a step away from its German roots with, with the um, Alsace bordering Germany. Um, and we've got pictures in the archive of things like, um, oh, there's, there's one of a of, of a schoolgirl with a little um, Dachshund on a lead, but. In its tail, there's a there's a flag with a Union Jack on it, and the, the caption is something like "Taking no chances." I think I, I think those stories are wonderful. I mean, did was there anything, or did they start to portray when the Americans arrived? Were there any sort of themes of animals and and how the Americans um, worked with them, or how they related to them? I don't know whether that becomes you know or Uncle Sam coming. I don't know what sort of animal an eagle, I suppose, would would represent America. We've we've certainly got sort of recruitment posters and other propaganda with you know, the American bald eagle on and pictures of um, American soldiers with, with their own you know, regimental mascots and pets of um, all, all sorts of creatures really I mean, you sort of try and think of the, the stereotypical you know what, what would be American but we've got pictures of, of, of doughboys with um, a cota mundi which is a bit like it's a, an animal a bit like a similar to a raccoon I don't know how that got on in the latter stages of the war but they I think they had a similar attitude to the British in terms of I mean, adopting creatures great and small and the, the, the merits that came with that in in terms of uh, companionship. What about the Australians and the and New Zealanders and even the even the Indian troops? Did they have a relationship with animals that was picked up in the press and uh, sort of commented on? We, we do have a picture of um, an Aussie soldier with a, a kangaroo on a chain. So again, it was, well, I suppose, sort of psychologically tying in your mascot with your, your, your national identity. And the, uh, the Canadians had, uh, regiments had several um, black bears, uh, which, funnily enough, ended up in London Zoo, sort of during and after the war, because as, as your bear cub gets bigger, becomes slightly slightly more unmanageable on the front lines. And in fact, it's um, it's believed that Winnie the Pooh, so the, the bear of uh, Christopher Robin, A.A. Milne's son, was in part inspired by um, a bear called Winnie that came to live at London Zoo that was originally a mascot of um, Canadian troops. The, the bear took its name from, I think it was um, Winnipeg in Canada. So that, that's sort of its... Uh, uh, and I was also wondering how wildlife was portrayed in the trenches, because the reason being, there's a number of accounts I've got of people being engaged in battle, but also noticing how larks and other birds still going about their, their everyday business. Yes, that, that's certainly a bit of a reoccurring theme. Like you say, it's sort of the um, the, the stark contrast of nature's, nature's business as usual continuing whilst man is at war, and even things like um, migrating birds, um, plant life and things like that um, returning did feature in the press quite a lot in a way that you would perhaps not expect. You'd think maybe the, the thrust of the, the public interest would be on troop movements and that kind of thing. But there was a surprising amount of material on, particularly bird life, in fact, on the front lines that you, you perhaps wouldn't, wouldn't anticipate. There was um, one, one feature I remember coming across had pictures of, of swans um, that had you know, survived shell and shot, as they described it. So there was an awareness that there were animals, wild animals on the front lines that were swept up in the conflict that really had no no place there, but were sort of carrying on regardless. And I've certainly read um, extracts from diaries 
been quite poignantly written where, say, a soldier or, and his regiment or whatever is, is sheltering, say, in woodland and noticing the, the bird song or the flowers or something which is a complete contrast and quite alien to the, um, to the violence that's surrounding them. And finally, where can people get your book from? It's available from the Pen and Sword website um, and it's also um, for sale on Amazon as well. Lucinda, thank you very much for your time. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.